Welcome to the Improv in Practice podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wilson, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on improvised theater with Synergy Theater. You can find Synergy Theater's classes, workshops, performances, and more at synergytheater.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y theater.com. Okay, lights down, curtain up. Hello, friends. It's October 26, 2022, as I record this. And just recently, I went to see Synergy Theater's Spontaneous Hitchcock at the Lesher Center in Walnut Creek, California. The show is so good. I saw more than one, and each show was very different. Like Griffin, Arastu, Valerie, Regalia, and Nikki all said, the cast worked to build the suspense of each scene, the direction of the story depended on the audience's energy, and the cast's wardrobe and set was straight from the 1960s. Listen, Spontaneous Hitchcock ends October 30th, but it's only the beginning of Synergy Theater's new season of shows. If you live or plan to travel to the San Francisco Bay Area, I recommend that you visit SynergyTheater.com and check out their show dates. You could even become a show ticket subscriber. Now, picture this. A man sits in a darkened theater. It's intermission time and everyone around him is talking and laughing. He feels like someone is watching him and looks up but it's too late. Someone he recognizes is already standing in front of him. There's no escape. This may have been Paul Hansen's experience, if Hitchcock had directed it, when I approached Paul at a recent spontaneous Hitchcock show. I had seen Paul from my seat next to Valerie Jord and snuck over to him to say hi. Paul and I met in our Improv 4 class, taught by Ken Adams. In addition to being a Synergy Theatre student, Paul is also a composer and has a background in theatre. We're listening to Paul's music now, composed in the theme of Hitchcock's films. In our interview, we talk about Paul's admiration of Hitchcock's work and a lot more. Here we go. Paul, I'm not sure that you're familiar with Valerie. Paul, Valerie, Valerie, Paul. I'm certainly familiar with her son, Griffin Beers. I've been taking lessons with him and Ken Adams on improv, and they're both very fine instructors. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I would like to talk to you about what it's like to have Griffin as an instructor and what you are learning in his class. Quite a lot. I mean, let me give you, if I could, let me give you a little bit of my background. I spent a lot of years in New York where I was involved with what I would call scripted theater. It certainly wasn't improv. I ran a Shakespeare company for several years, and then I went from that to just mainly being an actor where I was involved with another company there that did, you know, quite a lot of Shakespeare, and it wouldn't have been unusual to do like three or four productions of a Shakespeare play over the summer. I had quite a bit of experience in scripted theater, but really none in improv. As I told Griffin and Ken, the only experience I had in improv was basically when I would forget a line or another actor on the stage would forget a line or an actor would forget to come on the stage when they were supposed to be there. And at that point, he would sort of have to improvise for a couple of minutes or hopefully just a few seconds until everybody was back on script. I think that Griffin is teaching the more elementary courses at Synergy Theater. 
And that's what I started off with a few months ago. And now I'm also taking lessons from Ken, who does sort of the more advanced techniques for longer improv situations. And so Griffin is really teaching the basics, which are very helpful in terms of sort of how to structure small scenes, whereas Ken is basically getting into longer structures. And it's interesting to see the variety in terms of the technique of that. Have you seen Griffin perform live? Oh, yes. That goes back to about a year ago. I saw a poster for Shakespeare Improv, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Since I had a fair amount of experience with Shakespeare, I'd never seen an Improv Shakespeare production. So that was the first production of Synergy that I saw, and Griffin was in that, Ken was in that. Yeah, so I've seen him also in the Dickens and also in the Space Improv. So what was your first impression? Had you ever seen a full-length improvised play before? Never. No. And that was something that I thought was going to be very interesting because how does one go about improvising a Shakespeare play? I mean, the challenge I think would be almost kind of enormous because obviously you're dealing with one of the greatest geniuses that, you know, world civilization has produced. So I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. I mean, that's a real challenge. And I actually saw two or three of the productions or performances. And I mean, I thought they carried it off very well and it was all very credible. At one of the performances that I saw, you know, there would be plot twists in which you could sort of literally hear the audience gasp. So they were clearly very involved with it. That was a very successful series of performances. I thought they really pulled it off. And Valerie would have been at each one of those shows, right, Valerie? Yes, that would be me holding the camcorder, probably sitting by myself. Well, that's wonderful to hear, Paul, that your first exposure to improvised theater was a synergy theater show. Did that spark your interest in taking a class? Yeah, it did. I think it was like October last year that the Shakespeare occurred. And this was sort of right when everything was starting to open up. And I think people were just very eager to get back to live performances. So there was that element too. And then I remember when I saw the Shakespeare, they said that the next production was going to be the Hitchcock. I think it was actually scheduled for last January, but then there was another resurgence of COVID in one of the variants. And so they had to postpone that, which at the time I remember feeling very disappointed because I'm just a huge fan of Hitchcock. And then I really enjoyed the Dickens. I'm fairly well read with Dickens and I'm really admired him as an author as well. And so I was interested to see how they would adapt to that. And then, of course, who doesn't love Star Wars and Star Trek? So the space improv was a lot of fun. Yes, it, it hits all my favorite buttons as well in those categories. And one of the reasons why, Paul, I wanted to interview you was because of your background in theater. And then also, since we take Improv 4 together on Sundays with Ken, and we love that class, during that class, I, I have heard you talk about Hitchcock and you obviously have some knowledge there and an affinity for Hitchcock's mm -hmm. work. Though mm -hmm. I also wanted to have you on to talk about what you love about Hitchcock and how you think the interplay between improvised theater in a Hitchcock theme is going to develop on stage for Synergy. That's a good question. I have been a fan of Hitchcock for decades. One of the earliest memories that I have of life is watching the birds on TV when I was very, very young. I just remember the very surrealistic and unsettling aspects of it. I think I was like five or six years old. The whole thing just struck me as being very dreamlike in the sense that I'm not sure you were supposed to take it all that literally, but it just had that sort of nightmarish, bizarre quality about it which didn't really necessarily scare me too much, 
but I remember it as just being very distinctive. And then as I grew older, I started watching his films and there's a wonderful film that he made called Saboteur in uh, 1942 with Robert Cummings, which was made at the beginning of World War II that deals with sabotage. And again, that film has sort of a surreal quality about it in the sense that it's a little bit like North by Northwest in the sense they have this sort of cross-country journey and that they end up at the top of the Statue of Liberty in a very dramatic scene in which somebody's basically holding on for dear life to the torch and they're about to fall over. And, and the whole way that that was choreographed, again, it just sort of had this surrealistic dreamlike quality about it, which I just found very memorable and very interesting. What I like about Hitchcock is that whenever I watch one of his films, you can always sense that there's somebody behind the camera thinking at every moment in the film. His films, whether they're successful or not, most of them are, but some less so. You always sense that there's a really intelligent eye and a really intelligent hand that's orchestrating it all. And it's really just sort of fascinating to watch. I mean, I think he's a true auteur, uh, stating the obvious, but it's just fascinating, I think, to watch his thinking processes and how he translates that into the visual imagery that you see on the screen, either in a cinema or on TV. How do you think that will translate to an improvised play? That I am very curious to see, because I think that there are very definite tropes that he deals with in his films. And so like when I went and saw the Shakespeare, I said, I don't know what they're going to pull from Shakespeare, because obviously he's so rich and he's hard to categorize. But I suspect that I will probably hear what I think will be kind of a lot of Elizabethan language and a lot of these and thous. And when I went to the Dickens, I thought, well, Dickens deals with certain themes like exploitation and poverty and vulnerable children at the center of a story. And then when I went to space improv, I thought, well, there's going to be probably certain references to Star Trek and Star Wars. And so I thought, well, it's going to be very interesting to see exactly what they call from Hitchcock because you're presenting it as a Hitchcock evening then you really are going to be expecting to see some tropes from the films and certain ideas which were repeated over a huge career. I mean, he was making films over a 50-year period. So I'm very curious to see what they're actually going to pull from Hitchcock's films to really give it a Hitchcock imprint. There are certain films of Hitchcock's that they are going to pull heavily from, Psycho being one of them. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? I think it's really interesting, and I actually wrote down a list of five or six tropes that I will be looking for, and they don't have to be in the show, but these were kind of the tropes that I thought would be probably the obvious choices. But if you don't mind, I just sort of like to read them off. Please do. The first one is that things can turn around on a dime. An air of normalcy can be disrupted very quickly. The second one is appearances can be very deceiving. People seem to be guilty when they're actually innocent or innocent when they're actually guilty. Hitchcock made a number of films about people who were falsely accused of murder and other crimes. You mentioned Psycho. There are a number of movies, just not Psycho, but others that really deal with mother issues. And the issue of the character's relationship to the mother is really central to the plot. The last trope was really big scenic climaxes like you have like at the end of North by Northwest where they're on Mount Rushmore. Yes. What you have said has triggered something. I was thinking about Valerie and her love of being in a chair behind a camera for the mm -hmm. synergy shows. So Valerie, what is it about being there aside from being Griffin's mom? 
What is it about being there and being behind the camera and wanting to live through that lens? I always wanted to be a writer and I studied communications and journalism. This is not writing, but I feel it is my interpretation of the show where I, I zoom in on certain scenes or characters and I don't really edit at all. I don't have time to edit, but when I post the videos and then I, well, first I do the pictures, I take about hundred to 200 pictures while it's recording. So I usually post the pictures first because Ken asked not to post the videos till after the series is over. Right. So I'll, I'll post, you'll see it tons of pictures from each show and then I'll give a little synopsis of what happened. That's like how I can write and have pictures, all my favorite mediums all together, which is so enjoyable for me. And then you get to present that to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hitchcock was driven by, I'm sure, a number of things, but not the least of which was his drive to show the world his perspective on life. And Paul, like you said, one of those was a fear of being falsely accused. And Paul, I'm guessing maybe you have already heard this about Hitchcock's background, that when he was very, very young, his father sent him with a note to the local police station. Mm. Have you heard this, Paul? Yes, I have. Okay, I, I, you finish, you want to finish the story? Well, from my memory was that they actually took him into a jail cell and incarcerated him there for a few while. And I, I think oh, he no. found very painful and sort of lingered with him for the rest of his life. Yes. The note was from his father asking the station chief to please lock up his son. And the station chief, as he put him in Hitchcock in the cell, said, well, this is what <laughs> this is what we do to naughty boys. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Paul, you were talking about tropes that you hope to see that Hitchcock is very well known for. And one of those, like I just said, is false imprisonment. So we can guess that Hitchcock was drawing heavily from his own background there. Right. A false imprisonment or just false accusations in general that a person basically has to clear their name of the horrendous accusation that has been made against them. It was in the very first film that I think really created a stir in terms of getting its name widely known to the larger public. And it was a film called The Lodger, a silent film in 1925, which dealt with a lodger in a boarding house who was ultimately falsely accused of being a serial murderer. There again, it goes to the larger issue, I think, of how Hitchcock likes to play with false perceptions, because when you first see this lodger, when he first makes his interest in the film, he actually looks fairly sinister. And on the surface, he's behaving in sort of a bizarre way. And so it'd be very easy for just on those perceptions alone to believe that he could be a serial killer. But ultimately, you know, he's not and he's absolved, but he goes through just a harrowing situation before he is absolved from the accusation that he was responsible for these murders. And and that situation is, is a situation that we can all see ourselves in mm -hmm. being falsely accused. And one of the things that I like about Hitchcock films is that the lead characters are very relatable in their fears and being falsely accused or wrongfully imprisoned. That is a very primal fear for anyone. Uh, mm. And what I know is going to be so good about the synergy representation of Hitchcock and his themes is that their characters that they play are also all very approachable and relatable. What do you think about that? One of the reasons, now that I think about it, why a lot of Hitchcock films are so powerful is that a person could probably relate to a musician just sort of minding his own business and trying to support himself and his wife, all of a sudden being dragged 
into this false accusation that he was behind a murder or somebody who's just a lodger and maybe a little off all of a sudden being accused of these horrendous serial crimes. The very relatable aspect of these people who are really these victims of these false accusations probably really gives these movies added resonance. I was thinking about The Birds, that film. Mm -hmm. Did you say that was your first? That's the first one I remember seeing it. And it's all kind of a, I think I was only, like I say, five years old when I first saw it. Again, even going back and looking at the film, even today, I think the whole thing has a surreal quality to it. And it certainly came through when I was five years old. And I think to this day, people are not really sure about how to interpret that movie, if it's supposed to be taken literally or more metaphorically or exactly what angle a person is supposed to view it. It's all just basically kind of mysterious and the story is unusual and offbeat. And uh, there's just this whole air of mystery about it as to what is all this really supposed to mean. And I've seen all sorts of interpretations of it. A person can speculate about, but no, it's a very intriguing film. Valerie has said that that is the one that creeps her out. <laughs> it is. And, you know, the fact that like it takes place in Bodega Bay, which is a place I really like, which is like, ah, uh, I like Bodega Bay, but why do I always associate that with the birds? And then I do remember a time when Griffin, <laughs> he probably doesn't want me to tell this story, but when Griffin was probably only five or six years old, we were at the San Francisco Zoo. And we were having lunch outside of the cafeteria and a huge seagull came down and <laughs> took his hamburger. <laughs> it was just knocked over his chocolate milk. We were just freaked out and like, ah, birds. <laughs> and I just can't remember being more terrified of a bird. Not that I thought of the birds at that moment, but I'm not sure if Griffin remembers that. But it was it was not a great time for me. And I haven't been back to the zoo since. <laughs> so... I had an experience like that when I was <laughs> my my dad was getting his PhD done doing research in Indonesia. And this was again, when I was very young, probably about the same age as Griffin five or six. So we were in a zoo in Singapore and I was just this five or six year old kid minding my own business, you know, with a bag of peanuts. And there was, it was like this open air zoo where there were monkeys that were free to roam around. And I, there was this monkey way up on the top of the tree. And I saw him looking down at me and I crawled down the tree, <laughs> came right up to me, grabbed my peanuts, and then walked like 10 or 15 feet away and turned around as if to say, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I, I remember being kind of startled in it, but that's a, a memory that was very vivid in my mind. I love both of those stories. Now, you know that birds are descended from dinosaurs. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'll admit, I did not know that. They really are, aren't they? That makes sense now. Well, what's really interesting, I think, <laughs> since we're on the topic of the birds, is, and you mentioned Psycho, is that bird imagery is very prevalent in Psycho as well. The character of Janet Leigh, her name is Marion Crane. A crane is obviously a bird. Mm. She's, she's from Phoenix, which is another bird. Norman Bates likes to stuff birds. I mean, he has that very eerie scene with Janet Leigh where there's an owl up above, a stuffed owl basically staring down at the audience. And at one point, Norman Bates tells Marion that you eat like a bird. When Norman comes back into the motel room and sees the body, the dead body of Janet Leigh, he has this reaction, which tips over a bird picture on the wall. So there's all this bird imagery, very, very subtle that's going on. And again, I'm not entirely sure what it all means, except that I read in one analysis that birds are sometimes considered the harbinger of bad news 
or the presence of a bird can be a bad omen. Paul, that is so great. I had not ever put that together. Believe me, it's not original with me. I, re- I remember reading all this in an analysis years ago when somebody was going through the film. But that goes to the, one of the things that I like about Hitchcock is that the clues that he puts in these films are very, very subtle. And then he goes from Psycho with all that bird imagery, and then he goes full force. The next film he made was just flat out The Birds, which deals with another really catastrophic situation, actually far more catastrophic than the psycho because there are many, many victims and a whole city is disrupted. Well, if there's not at least one piece of taxidermy on the stage at the lecture, <laughs> I will be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <It better> be. <laughs> so Paul, if you don't mind, if we could pivot back to our improv four class quickly, mm-hmm. what is your impression of the class and what are you getting from it? A lot. I mean, I think that to go back with my previous experience with scripted plays, I would sometimes be in plays that would last anywhere, maybe from 90 minutes to three and a half hours. No matter how short or long was, there was always this moment before the play began when you really would say to yourself, all right, remember your lines. You know, you need to assure yourself we're going to do this, but you have to be very alert. But then I'm saying to myself, when I see these improvisers come out and they walk out on the stage, And the whole situation is very unpredictable. And I'm just saying to myself, well, I think possibly the tension level would be far greater because at least when you're in a scripted play, you have a roadmap. And if somehow things get a little diverted, you can always get back on that map. But there really is no map per se with improv. So I really respect the fact that they just walk out there confidently convinced that they're going to make an entertaining and cohesive two-hour show. And every time I've seen one of these performances, they have. So you saw a Synergy show, then you became interested in taking a class. What was something that shifted a perspective or gave you a new insight from when you saw one of the shows to when you actually did the improvising yourself? What was sort of an interesting surprise is that you always have to be amenable to whatever, what are known as offers of that improv partner will make that you shouldn't sit back and be judgmental in terms of, well, I don't really like that idea, therefore I'm not going to go with it. That sort of paradigm that you basically do accept that offer and make your partner look good. Of course, you want to do that under any circumstances, but you have to go with the flow in terms of the ideas that your scene partners are offering and build on that. Maybe my instinct is, and I think Ken even admitted this, that what can happen with other improvisers as well is that they have a definite idea about where they want to seem to go, and they may end up not necessarily going with the ideas of the others that are being made, but are trying to shove the scene in a direction they want to go in. So it's really sort of a very collaborative performance art, and you always have to make sure that you're going with that flow and building on it. Yes, that is a muscle that... I seek to strengthen, letting go of my own intentions or thoughts and going forward with my partner's offers and truly building a story that neither of us would imagine ourselves. You know, our last session, Griffin gave us this chart of, there were like eight or nine steps of how to build a short scene, something that's going to last maybe just a couple of minutes. And when we did it, and it was just, it was just literally sort of laid out like a recipe of what you were supposed to do next. 
And I thought this would be a very interesting way to just make short stories that could actually be pretty effective, whether they were for adults or children's books, you know, because if you just follow these steps and all of a sudden you have a fairly cohesive story that I could even see maybe being published in some form in either a children's book or a short story anthology or something like that, particularly if you're a writer and you have writer's block being familiar with some of the techniques in improv, I think would really help you if, if, if that writer's block ever arose. Absolutely. I always come away from one of Ken's classes or from a synergy show and I feel so creative. It just sparks in me all sorts of creative thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that Alfred Hitchcock would have been a good improviser? Actually, what I read is that, and this was what makes him interesting as a director, is that he was just very, very meticulous in terms of his planning, that he would often just storyboard the whole film, have everything diagrammed out in terms of every shot. And that pre-production aspect of literally knowing exactly what each shot was going to look like, the sequence of it all, that he said that's where the real fun was, was, was doing the storyboarding and the pre-planning. So he knew basically pretty much what the film was going to look like even before he got on a set. And I think I've read before that he actually felt kind of deflated when it actually got down to the actual filming because he felt that really most of the creative stuff, at least from what I read, happened in the pre-planning stage. So my instinct is that he might have been a good improviser, but I think he was very interested in very meticulous planning. Perhaps when they were plotting out the original screenplay and plotting out the story, he probably was amenable to tossing around a number of ideas. But my sense is that he really enjoyed planning and I think he wanted to know exactly what he was gonna do before he ever got onto the movie set. So he might've been a good improviser, but I'm not so sure how amenable he would be to that when it actually came down to the filming itself. I wonder where in improvising a scene with Alfred Hitchcock, if that ever happened, I wonder where the story would go if he was willing to give up part of that control. I was watching a interview on YouTube the other day with William Friedkin, who directed one of my favorite films, The French Connection. That film is amazing. And he talked about how he didn't like to rehearse. And if I understood him correctly, it's like he didn't bother rehearse, but just would film the scene because he wanted the spontaneity of it. And perhaps he thought, if I understood him correctly, that rehearsing would dampen that spontaneity. But my sense with Hitchcock, and, and I've read that he gave his actors a certain degree of latitude within the general framework that he wanted, but in terms of really free-throwing improvisation within a scene, I doubt he would be into that. Let's pretend that we're all at the Hitchcock-themed synergy show at the Lesher, and let's pretend that Alfred Hitchcock is there. He's in the audience. He's going to watch the show. <laughs> Valerie and Paul, what questions would you want to ask Alfred Hitchcock as we all sit together and wait for the lights to go down? <laughs> I'd want to know which character he'd want to see killed <laughs> in the show. Assuming that, you know, we, we had a, a sneak into who the characters were. I just feel like he has a victim planned already. And I'm curious to know who he would pick. That's a good one. What else, Valerie? Can you think of another question you'd want to ask him? Who the killer would be, the victim <laughs> and the killer. What are the pivotal points in the story? And that would make my imagination go wild. Just thinking about what, what his perspective would be. Paul, what about you? 
it's interesting when you ask yourself who would the killer be, because I think that I've read elsewhere that he thought that his favorite film that he did was Shadow of a Doubt. I mean, it's really a, a magnificent film. And it was part written by Thornton Wilder, who, of course, wrote Our Town. It's just very artful. And the basic trope of that film or the basic idea of that film is, again, that appearances can be deceiving in the sense that there's an uncle that appears on the scene who is seemingly so affable is played by Joseph Cotton. But Teresa Wright finds out that her uncle, once the layers are peeled away, that he's actually a serial killer. But it's set up in such a way that he just does seem pretty affable and you wouldn't suspect him. If, if I could ask Hitchcock a question, I would ask him why he was particularly interested in that concept of false appearances, how people can be guilty but appear innocent, or how innocent people are innocent but actually appear guilty. I would ask him why that theme was of a particular interest to him. And there was that line in Macbeth where he says something to the effect that there's no art in reading the mind's construction in the face, meaning that it's hard to tell what a person is actually thinking. So let's see, I have the actual quote here. So let me give a literal recitation. There's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. And I think that that's something that Hitchcock himself would probably really agree with because that's the subject of so many of his films is that. Again, it's very hard to judge a person based on their appearances and that you have to look really deeper into their personality to discover who they really are. So I would ask him that, and then I'd be curious to see if they deal with that thing when Synergy performs with that false appearance of somebody who seems innocent but isn't, and they who may have a guilty appearance but is actually innocent. It'll be interesting to see if they examine that idea. To pull back and speak to an overall perspective that I have is people when they hear and haven't been ex yet exposed to improvised theater, especially with synergy theater, their first impression may be, what? I Like, what do you mean there's no script? They're doing a full-length play and there's no script? I, there's no way that's going to work. That perception is one that is definitely false. And once you see a synergy show, that perception just goes right out the window, don't you think? I've seen a number of performances for each of these. I've usually gone to several of the performances just for the fun of seeing how they take a certain style, whether it's Dickens or Shakespeare or the space operas and how they mold a different performance every night. And it's often very different. But I think there is that perception is like, how can a group of eight or nine individuals keep a show going for two hours and keep it cohesive and keep it entertaining and keep it funny. To be honest, when I walk into improv, I sort of assume the chances of failure are pretty great because it's a very complicated enterprise, but I've never been disappointed when I've seen one of these synergy performances and I thought that it always came off very well. Yes, it always does. Paul, I would like to know if there is anything that you would like to promote, any creative projects that you're working on like that? Actually, I've just finished a piano concerto <laughs> so that I put up on YouTube. If anybody would care to listen to it, you can just go to YouTube and just punch in Paul Hansen with the H-A-N-S-E-N uh, and piano concerto and listen to it. And if you want to leave feedback, whether positive or negative or anything between, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm definitely going to check that out. I also wanted to ask you, Paul and Valerie, if you could improvise and be any character from any Hitchcock film, which character would you want to play? 
<laughs> Sarah, your questions are so fun. <laughs> well, definitely, I want to be the psycho. I would love to be Norman Bates. I mean, that's two characters in one. <laughs> I'd love to be Cary Grant in North by Northwest. <laughs> Why? Because he's very suave and he's very cosmopolitan. And even in the heat of a crisis, he keeps it together. And there's just a great intelligence and acting ability there. It would be fun to be Cary Grant. Absolutely. Is there anything else that the two of you want to share or talk about? Sarah, what about you? Uh, let's see. How am I feeling today? <laughs> <laughs> well, to step into the high-heeled shoes of any female character in any Hitchcock film is a risky deal. I really do appreciate the storytelling that Hitchcock delivered to the world, but I can't think of a strong female character in a film that I would want to play, even though Grace Kelly is one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, I was just going to say Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Yes, that would be my go-to. Yes. The female role in Vertigo is also one that's very interesting. And there's a, a lot of depth there in my perspective. So that one would be interesting as well. And then even the female counterpart to Cary Grant's character in North by Northwest, there is more to that character than meets the eye. Eve Marie Saint. Mm -hmm. That's another trope that I wonder if they're bringing up in Vertigo because that movie is very powerful and it deals with the issue of obsessive love. Yes. And it also brings up the issue of blondes. I'll be interested to see if uh, they work that motif into the improv performances. When we were talking to Arastu about the upcoming performance, we were talking about the clothing and the costumes. And I just know that Lynn and all the other ladies that are going to take part in the show, they're all just going to look so great. Paul and Valerie, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one more time if there's anything else that you want to mention here at the end, and then I'm going to let you go. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, yes. Paul. Thank you. Thank you. And Paul, I can't wait to listen to your concerto. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm going to look that up now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye and that's our show. If you think improv sounds like fun, it is. If you think you'd like to try improv, it's easy. Just go to SynergyTheater.com and click on School of Improv. Synergy Theater offers beginner, advanced, and master classes. Synergy Theater is also on Facebook. Please rate, review, and follow this podcast. Your support makes a difference. Synergy Theater is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit that depends on the participation of current and future star supporters and improvisers like you. Thank you.